The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Jesus, we welcome you as the Lord, our righteous Savior. Father, we thank you for the love and safety you offer by sending us your Son. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to your wisdom, please, as we begin this Advent season. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Lindsay, thank you. Thank you for helping us officially kick off Christmas. You're allowed to say that now. I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, we are going to dismiss our youth and our kids to the outlet and to Life Kids. And we're going to get into the word this morning. Are you ready? Are you ready to celebrate Jesus this year? It feels like we were just doing this. I, I don't know about you, but I feel like we just did this. Uh, it was, <laughs> I was actually looking at our, our Christmas time notes uh, from our series from last year this time, and it feels like it was just a couple of months ago. It was 12 months ago. It was a whole year ago that we were celebrating uh, Christmas together. We were having our last four services outdoors in a tent. Uh, if you were with us, that was a, that was a good old time. And uh, we moved back inside uh, in January of this year, and it feels like it's just gone by so fast. Um, whereas as the year before felt like it was never going to end. And so we're kind of in this weird still limbo of time, and who, who knows what's going on, but what we do know is that today is the first Sunday of a four-week period called Advent. Advent is really a, a word that means the, the beginning or the coming of something significant, right? So we would talk even historically about uh, the advent of some kind of technological breakthrough, the advent of the telephone and how that changed the world. Uh, we would talk about the advent of, in, in the context of the coming of a specific historical person. And in this case, when we talk about advent, we are referring to the coming of the Messiah. Messiah is uh, the, the one who would come and save the people of God, the one who would come and set us free from our sins. Christmas is uh, the, the season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And, and each week during the traditional Advent season, we, the, the church has historically lit a candle every week. And you can see in front of me that there are 
Uh, there are five candles, and we will light each of these together as we celebrate this Advent season. Uh, the fifth candle we will light on Christmas Eve in our uh, annual traditional candlelight service, one of my favorite services of the entire year. Uh, and so make sure that you make plans to join us for Christmas Eve uh, as well as we have that service. Uh, the first candle in our Advent, uh, in our Advent journey, you might call it, is uh, what has historically been called the prophet's candle, or it's also referred to as the the hope candle. Uh, it symbolizes the hope of being told about the Messiah. So all of the prophecies over all of the hundreds of years that, uh, that spoke about the coming Messiah, the one who was going to come and set all of the people free and, and set the story right, uh, this is the candle that symbolizes that story, those prophecies, all of the words that were spoken. In fact, uh, the reading that Lindsay gave for us this morning is in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. As she lit the first candle, she was reading for us a passage of Scripture and a prophecy and a promise of the hope of the Messiah that was given over 600 years before Jesus was born. We are talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy and people waiting long periods of time. And can you imagine the numbers of generations that would have been born and grown to adulthood and heard the prophecies and the promises of a coming Messiah and then grown into their old age and eventually gone down into the grave and never have seen the promise of the Messiah. It's almost like how we now are waiting generation after generation being born and raised to believe that this same Messiah will come again. And so many generations before us have gone down into the grave, not yet seeing the second coming of the Messiah, and we wonder if maybe we are the generation who will see it. But for now, we continue to wait. And for now, we continue to light the candle to say, God, would you keep the hope of the promise of the second coming of the Messiah burning in our hearts. Because we, unlike Jeremiah, we can look back at uh, the story of when the Messiah did come. And that is what this celebration is all about. That's what this journey is all about, beginning to look forward to the celebration as we also look back knowing that we have good reason to celebrate. While we also hold intention, this continued looking forward to something that we ourselves have, have not yet seen. So as we begin Advent this, this year, in the middle of all of that, which the way I describe that kind of feels a little bit like the world that we're living in right now. All of the, the tensions and the unknown and the what are we waiting for and we wish life would do something that feels normal at some point and, and all of the stuff going on in the world, we want to take some time and put our focus on the coming King. And so as we begin this Advent season this year, I want us to look at a few of the prophecies this Sunday as we talk about the prophet's candle uh, or the hope of the coming of the Messiah. Uh, I want us to look specifically at some prophetic promises that were delivered a little bit closer to 
the coming of the Messiah than the one that we heard this morning in Jeremiah. In fact, I want to look at three characters at the beginning of the Christmas story. We're going to take a look at Zechariah, we're going to take a look at Mary, and then we're going to, third, we're going to look at Joseph. These are people that you've probably heard of before. And so let me just set the tone as we dig into our first character today. Zechariah was a Jewish man, and he wasn't just any Jewish guy. He was a priest for the Jewish people. And as a priest, he had a very specific job to do. Part of his job was that he would come up for a rotation to serve at the temple periodically. And so he was actually on his rotation to serve at the temple during the time that the story that we're going to read uh, today uh, took place. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to bring one with you to church. Uh, We absolutely love to open God's Word together. Uh, and read what the Lord would say to us from Scripture. If you don't have one, though, we don't want you to feel bad about that. You can always go onto uh, the Bible app or version, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Uh, I will read to you uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 13 in just a moment. Let me do just a little bit more of setting the context. So this guy, Zechariah the priest, was an old man. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth, and they had never had children. And they were at the age where they had, they had decided that that ship had sailed. We are not going to have any kids of our own. And so one day, this old man, this old Jewish priest, Zechariah, is serving in his rotation in the temple, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to him, And he is appropriately responding. He is terrified. This is how you typically respond when an angel appears to you in Scripture. You are terrified. And so our reading today in Luke chapter 1 verse 13 begins the way most angel encounters begin. The angel responds to Zechariah and says, do not be afraid. So there's something good that is about to happen here. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Uh, there's a story later on about how uh, Elizabeth, while pregnant, encounters Mary while she was pregnant with Jesus. And it says, uh, Elizabeth says, as soon as I saw you, she says this to Mary, as soon as I saw you, the baby inside of me leapt for joy. Uh, this, this actually is a really solid case for, just as a side note, why we believe that babies in the womb are actual real people, uh, because a baby can have an encounter with, the, with, with Jesus, with God himself in the womb, and have a reaction. There was something of a, of a real human spiritual reaction happening in that womb, and that was not just a fetus, that was a human being having an encounter with God. Right? That's just a side note for why we believe uh, that, that those babies pre-birth are actual real human beings. Just, just a thought to encourage uh, and, and maybe minister to your heart there if you've got questions about that. 
you have, if that, what I just said, brings up further questions, I'd love to talk with you about that sometime. But I think that that's an important and exciting thing to draw out uh, of this. But it says here that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. So that story gives us that evidence. Pick it up in verse 16. The angel continues to tell Zechariah this. He, this is John, this baby that, he's, that his wife is going to have, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in, this, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Now, the angel was promising Zechariah two things. The angel, number one, was promising Zechariah that he was going to have a son with his very old wife. And number two, that this child would turn out to be a pretty significant person. And this kid actually would grow up to be the person that we now refer to as John the Baptist. Uh, because he would actually go out to the Jordan River and he would baptize people for, the, for them to, to repent, to turn to God, to, to become true followers of the way of God. He was, he was railing against the, the dead religiosity of the Jewish people and he was trying to get them to be prepared in their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. John seemed to live in a way that was saying that he knew that something radical was about to happen uh, and, and then we actually also know that John the Baptist uh, is famous in human history and biblical history because he was the man who actually baptized Jesus himself as he was beginning his ministry on earth. And so Zechariah uh, is told all of this, but there's a hiccup in the story. The hiccup is that Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. His response was, excuse me, uh, have you met me and my wife? Like, you couldn't have delivered this message 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You, you couldn't have delivered this message when we were young people. The ship has sailed, angel of the Lord. Sorry, buddy. Uh, you, you must have been held up. It, it, you know, I, I understand that sometimes the delivery system can, can be a little slow. This one came way late. I don't know where you have been, but we've, we passed that. This is not going to happen for us. And so, so he actually uh, refutes, he, he resists with unbelief the word of hope that this baby would be born. And if you know the story, you, you know this. If you don't, let me just tell you the angel's response to him was, well, first of all, what I said is going to happen. And secondly, you don't get to talk until the baby's born. <laughs> So, so the angel just puts him on mute for, for, for at least nine months. Months later, the story goes, the baby was born. They named him John, as was prophesied. I, I mean, at some point, Zechariah was probably like, oh, baby, I guess I, guess I know what I'm going to name him, right? If, if that part of the word is true, then I better name him the thing I was told to name him, named him John. He grew up to be exactly who the angel said that he would be. Ultimately, we know that the, this angel wasn't talking on his own will and for his own purposes. He was delivering the word and the purpose and the plan of God. Now, if you're paying close attention to this Christmas sermon number one of the Advent season, you might have noticed that this is not actually a prophecy about Jesus. This is a prophecy about someone named John. But, but this, this is not a, a prophecy that the Messiah will come one day like the Jeremiah prophecy was over 600 years before 
Jesus was actually born. This is a prophecy in this moment that, that says that the Messiah is coming now. Like the, the very next thing that is going to happen is the Messiah is finally going to come. It's as if the angel was saying, this promised child will be the one to usher in the promised child. And, that, and that's really what we see that John actually does, is he goes out to usher in the ministry of Jesus. It's, it's also significant that this promise came to an old man who had lost hope for a child. He, he did not believe the promise because... He had lived so long and still had never seen children. Zechariah, the Jewish priest, in this context represents the people of God, the Jews. God had given them a promise of a coming Messiah generations earlier, and generations had passed, and so had many people's hope for the Messiah to ever come. Israel, the Jewish people, had grown old and hard of hearing kind of like an old Jewish priest who couldn't believe that he could have kids. In fact, the people of Israel had grown so old and hard of hearing that it had been 400 years since God had last spoken prophetically to the people of Israel. That 400-year period is what we would call the intertestamental period, everything leading up to the, the Gospels, where this story begins, it had been 400 years since they had heard from God. And just for context, 400 years ago from today was the year 1621. This was the year Miles Standish became the first commander of the Plymouth Colony. Any of you there for that? No? Okay. Uh, it, it was also the, the gathering that was held later that year, actually in October in 1621, that later became known as the first Thanksgiving. 400 years ago. It's a minute. So God has been silent for 400 years. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, he sends an angel to an old guy. He says, you're going to have a son, and your son will set the stage for the coming of the Messiah. So the story of Zechariah reminds us that God always keeps his word. No matter how long it feels like it's been since he gave you the promise, he always keeps his promise, right? When God said that he would send a Savior, he meant it, even though it took hundreds of years to happen. God is never late. God is never forgotten. God never needs to be reminded he will always do what he says he will do. But also, Zechariah helps us understand that God's work and his timing are not limited to our struggle to believe. When God says that he's going to do a thing, he doesn't... He, notice this. The angel doesn't come and say, hey, Zechariah, I, I, I'm going to say something wild to you. So listen to this. He, and then he kind of makes this pitch, and then he goes... So what do you think? Do you believe? Is this good? Are you on board? He just comes and says, this is what God is going to do in your life now. Right? Surprise! And then when Zechariah makes it clear that, that he doesn't believe, God didn't change his plan. God used his plan to change the man. 
And I wonder if, if this Advent season we begin to ask ourselves some questions like, are there some places in my own life where my faith has grown old and stale? Are, are there some, some promises that I've heard God say to me that it's been a minute and, and maybe it's not been 400 years, but it kind of feels like it's been 400 years and I'm just wondering if maybe... COVID and the, the craziness of the last two years has undone some of God's promise, or, or maybe I'm sitting here wondering if my own sin and my own lack of faithfulness or my own lack of belief in God has undone or, or made it so that ship has sailed and God's purpose is just going to pass me by because I'm certainly not worthy, or because uh, if I was, it would have happened by now, whatever it is that, that, that you would, however you would put yourself in Zechariah's shoes, I wonder if this Advent season you can relate to just feeling a little bit like it's been too long for God to still have his way in your life. Maybe, maybe we can draw a helpful practice from, from a lesson that Zechariah had to learn the hard way. The response to Zechariah's disbelief was silence, right? Remember, God puts him on mute for, for a while, better part of a year. You don't, you don't get to say anything because you, you, you had a chance, and what you said just did not cut it. I've actually heard some people preach this passage and, and say that God muted Zechariah because the plan of God was so important that he couldn't afford to have a pivotal, important character in the story speaking death and disbelief over God's plan. And while that sounds good, I think that it actually puts too much power in Zechariah's mouth. As if... It, I mean, picture, picture yourself standing on the shore and yelling at the ocean to stop making waves. God will do what he's going to do. And I, I think as people with a Pentecostal bent, we too often put too much power in our own mouths. We, we try to think like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I, I, and look, we're going to talk about speaking life a lot in the future here at Life Church. We really, really believe that what you say matters and what you say is important and is powerful. But there is a limit to our power and there is no limit to God's power. And when he decides that he's going to do something... And then even further, when he tells you he is going to do something, your best response to that would be the opposite of Zechariah's response. Rather than opening your mouth, what if we practice silence? What if, we, what if we learn the lesson that Zechariah learned the hard way and this Advent season we begin to take time to practice the discipline of being silent before the Lord as we reflect on His plan and purpose in our lives? Now, I spend so much time telling God my opinions and sometimes I'm just thankful that He doesn't put me on mute like He did Zechariah. I have said so many wild things to God that are just my opinion. I'm really grateful that he's not yet just said, Tim, you no longer get to speak for nine months. You just don't get to talk. Thank God that he doesn't, for all the crazy, just stupid things that I've said. All the ways that I've resisted God with my mouth. I don't know if God could do that. I don't know if God could redeem that person.
I, I think maybe, maybe God's silenced Zechariah for his own good. As if to say, hey, hey buddy, you, you talk too much. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you there before you say something you're going to regret. I think that God wanted Zechariah to be silent so that he would be forced to pay attention to what God was doing rather than being distracted by his own opinions. See, silence has this way of slowing life down, right? Have you ever been silent for a whole day? It's the longest day you've ever lived, right? You have to, you have to give space to noticing things that are going on around you, Silence has this way of forcing, allowing, forcing you to to think more deeply about stuff than you would have otherwise. Uh, It allows you to make room to really hear God's voice. If I were to make this practical for you, you could practice silence like this. You set aside a period of time, maybe even every day. Maybe this is a commitment you want to make during the Advent season to practice silence. Uh, If I were to encourage you or give you a a specific action step, I would say, why don't you do this for 30 minutes every single day? Not the 30 minutes where you're groggy and you just woke up, but like 30 minutes where you could be talking and you choose not to, okay? So find a space and a time where you can be uninterrupted. Maybe it's a comfortable chair. Maybe it's on your exercise bike. Maybe you go for a walk, maybe a drive, uh, where you're going to get a chunk of time. Set a timer on your phone But then put your phone on airplane mode. That's important because you don't want to get interrupted, but you also want the phone to tell you when when you've hit 30 minutes. Not so you can go, oh, thank God I'm done, I can talk now, but so that you don't get distracted by constantly checking, has it been 30 minutes? Because it's going to seem like an hour, and it'll be 30 minutes. Okay. So you just want to trust your phone will tell you when the time is up. So, So then you just set your thoughts on God and be... Oh, that was it. Just be. That's that step. Just be. Don't say anything. I'm going to tell you right now, your mind absolutely will wander. It'll go to some crazy stuff. You'll you'll start feeling bad. It's my mind wanders so much. The discipline of practicing silence before the Lord is, is in one part, absolutely being curious with God about where your mind goes in silence and seeing if God will meet you in the middle of your random thoughts and maybe actually lead you to something that he wants you to think about. But also, it's equal parts that, letting your mind wander with God, and also equal parts the practice of bringing your mind back to God. There's something about the the wandering mind that you then go, oh, hold on, brain, come back to Jesus. That just that practice alone in silence is powerful and profound. And I, and I would just be curious to see how many of us would find ourselves uh, really, really enjoying the moments where we think random thoughts that it turns out that God put that, th- put that thought there. Or just the habit of, man, being silent 30 minutes a day and having to do the work of bringing my focus back to God, that's powerful. What a gift. It's like a, it's like a muscle that you get to exercise over time. And then, and then finally, I would just say resist the temptation to feel like you're trying to figure something out. Um, silence is the work. 
It doesn't, it, it, we, we live in a world where we're tempted so often to, to feel like we have to be productive and creative and do something, or, or we have to think smart thoughts. Think about God. It's the smartest thing you could think about, right? And then at the end of it, when someone asks you, hey, how's it been going practicing silence? You go, yeah, I have nothing to show for it. Perfect. Perfect. God is the goal of practicing silence. And so Zechariah teaches us this Advent season, what would it look like for us in the face of the hope of the Messiah to practice shutting down our opinions and being silent before the Lord? But Mary is going to teach us something quite different. We're going to begin to see Mary's story in Luke's gospel. We'll pick it up in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. It's like when someone comes over and, and they say extra, extra compliments, and in the back of your mind you go, oh no, what do you want? Right? Verse 30. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Whew, okay, good. I'm not in trouble. It's not the principal's office. It says, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Okay, so we're going to get to Mary in just a second. But first I want you to think about the implications of this. As we move in towards celebrating Christmas, think about what the angel has said. God himself is going to be born as a human being. Uh, just for historical accuracy, everyone in this room was born as a human being, which means we've all gone through the same painful, messy process. Now, I've never given birth to a child. Probably not going to happen. My wife has done that twice. Many of you in this room have given birth to children. From what I'm told, it's not fun. It's a messy, painful process. And so, being born as a human is an incredibly human experience. It's messy. And the king of the universe is going to subject himself to one of the most human experiences what a way to begin a journey that will end with one of the most human experiences, death. The very nature of Jesus being born to a human being as a human being says so much about his intentions for us. God is willing to get down where we are, to get into our mess and our pain in order to bring his love into our lives. This Advent season, we would ask ourselves, what are the places where the story of the King of Kings touches our own humanity? 
And are there places where we feel too messy to allow Jesus to have access? Are there places where we would say, no, Jesus, that one's too messy. I can't let you see that. And Jesus would say, I have been in the messiest situations, and I gave love there. Jesus has no intention to judge your mess, but he cannot heal what we do not show him, where we don't invite him to come and clean it up. Okay, now let's get back to Mary, because I want you to pay attention to Mary's initial response to this. In Luke chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 35, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've never had relations with a man? I'm going to just G-rate that since I know there's children in the room. Uh, The angel then replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One, therefore the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God and consider your relative Elizabeth even though she is even she has conceived a son in her old age and in and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless for nothing will be impossible with God I love that statement, just like exclamation mark at the end of the story. But, but look back at what, how Mary replied. She replied with a question, not an opinion like Zechariah gave. Zechariah replies with disbelief. Mary replies with curiosity, which is why I think she got a straight answer from the angel rather than being put on mute. So Mary comes across as innocent and humble in this moment. Zechariah comes off as a little bit arrogant, right? Like he was so certain that he was too old that he was willing to tell the angel of God that he was wrong. Advent is an invitation into humility as we come to celebrate Christ. Our initial response to God's work and his word in our lives should be curiosity rather than telling God how he can or cannot do what he says he will do. But then we see Mary's ultimate response in verse 38. She says, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary goes on to say some more things and do some more things and live an incredible life. But we see here Mary's response to God's plan is twofold. Curiosity and surrender. She calls herself the servant of God. She doesn't say, All right, God, whatever you say. I guess if this is what we're doing. She she puts herself in a position to be blessed because there are blessings for the servants of God. And so we can practice this same kind of response in this Advent season. We might call this the practice of speaking obedience, where Zechariah teaches us to practice silence. Mary would teach us to speak obedience. You might practice this practically by setting aside time to reflect on God's promises in your life. I recommend you get a journal and write them down. What are the things God has promised you? What are the things that God has said to you specifically for your life or generally in the Word of God about His people? And then the second thing that you would do here is that you would ask any questions that come up. Zechariah gets in trouble because he gives his opinion about how God can or cannot do what he says that he is going to do. We would find ourselves to be like Mary when we would ask the questions. So what questions come up? And these could be questions like, God, how will you do this thing in my life? And then listen for God's response. This might be a prophetic word. It might be a reminder of a specific scripture 
It might be a friend coming along and saying, hey, I felt like God was, was telling me to tell you this thing. It might be a memory that the Lord puts into your mind and you can pray and seek counsel about if what you're hearing and thinking and feeling is actually the word of God. You can always measure all of your thoughts and feelings up against scripture because God will never say anything that he doesn't agree with in the Bible. And I I would tell you what you feel like God is saying to you, write those things down as well. And then here is the part where we practice speaking out our obedience is that you would take what you have heard God say in response to your questions, which were a response to his commands and promises, and you pray out loud a prayer of submission to God. And I really, really mean there is something powerful about our words It would be very good for us to make a habit and a practice of when we know that God has told us to do something, that we pray out loud with our words, God, I'm your servant. I'm going to do what you told me to do. I'm your servant. Tell me what to do. I'm your servant. I commit that I will let you have your way in my life. And then, by the way, you could even write down your prayer as a way to come back later and mark the commitment that you made to God. What a great testimony then when you get to come back later and go, oh my goodness, I remember a year ago when I made a commitment that I was going to obey God in that and now I can see that it's happened in my life. Or maybe it's 40 years later, but you can come back and see how you marked your obedience. By the way, speaking obedience uh, does not require that you understand what God is going to do, just that you've heard it and you submit. There's plenty of things God has told me that he was going to do in my life I didn't understand until after he did it. My job was just to submit. So Zechariah teaches us to be silent. Mary then teaches us how to speak as God gives us hope for what Jesus wants to do in our lives. And then finally, Joseph has something to teach us as well. Joseph actually shows up in Matthew's gospel. Uh, For today's reading, I would read to you uh, from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, And Joseph finds himself in a little bit of a difficult situation. Matthew writes it this way, The birth of Jesus came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they had come together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Let's just pause there for just a moment so I can give you a little bit of a context. So engagement in the Jewish culture was legally binding. It was like being married already, but not yet getting to the wedding ceremony or all of the party that happens between the two of them on the wedding night. So none of that had happened yet, but they were legally bound together. So this is why the storyline could be a little bit confusing, but why it says that they were engaged, even though they were not yet what we would consider fully married, uh, but they had to, but in order to break off their engagement or their betrothal, it would have actually required legal action. It would have required a divorce. So that's why Matthew chose to write it that way. So when jo- Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, he's in, he's in a pickle. He's in a bit of a situation, right? Uh, he, he could have had her stoned to death culturally, and, and, and historically that would have actually been an allowed response. This woman has, ha- has, has cheated on me, and now she's pregnant, and we're not 
fully all the way done with our marriage process. Yes, it wasn't me. So he could have actually had her stoned to death, but then he chose to actually be gracious and keep the whole thing quiet. Matthew ascribes righteousness to him because of his actions. So good job, Joseph. You're, you're so far so good, right? But, but then even that actually, even, even what he was planning to do would have left Mary in an impossible situation. A single mother in that historical context had no agency. She would have had no prospects for work, no social power whatsoever. In many ways, it would have been like a prison sentence for her to have to, to live through the rest of her life with a child as a single mother, either in seclusion or in public shame. Okay, so back to the story. Now that we know a little bit of the context, it says this. But after Joseph had considered these things, so he's thinking about what he's going to do. He's made a decision. I'm not going to have her killed. It's not going to be ugly. I'm just going to try to be gracious a little bit. We'll cover her, even though it's going to be rough. But, you know, she did this to herself. Okay, so he's considered all these things. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. (laughs) Just don't be afraid. Third time we've heard that. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph often gets treated like a kind of like an extra, like a side character. He doesn't really have lines, he's just kind of there, you know. And then later on in the Gospels, we don't really hear about him. What is he doing? Is he even alive still by the time Jesus is crucified? We don't actually know. He, he just gets treated like, a, like an extra, like a, like a guy kind of in the story. But we have to understand that, that Joseph was actually the only one so far that we've talked about of these three characters that had any agency to actually do something in this story. He could have had Mary killed. He, he could have set her aside quietly. He had the power to make the deciding. The, he, he, was, he was in the position to make the choice. But, but Joseph is also actually a historically important figure. Joseph was a part of the line of David. It was actually prophesied that the Messiah would come through his family line. So it matters how Joseph responded in this moment. All of this, knowing that Joseph was an important historical figure, makes his response powerful. When he, it says in Matthew 124, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he didn't have relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Now, you could just say, of course he named him Jesus, like he just, that's what he was told to do. But even the way Matthew wrote it, the angel told him, you will name the child Jesus. And he did name the child Jesus. Him naming the child Jesus was, Jewish, in Jewish culture, the father names the children. And so him naming this son was Joseph's way of saying, this is going to be, I'm going to raise this child as if he were my son. So just think about all that Joseph has done. He doesn't talk back. He doesn't even ask questions, right? He, he wakes up. He immediately believes the angel or God's plan. 
He immediately changes his course of action. He covers Mary. He honors Mary's physical body and waits to consummate their marriage. He provides for and protects her on the journey to Bethlehem. And then he adopts Jesus as his own son and raises him as if he were his father. Joseph models immediate, active, and sustained obedience to God. Joseph emphasizes this kind of obedience, or rather James, sorry, James emphasizes this kind of obedience when he wrote in James 2.26, faith without works is dead. See, it's not just enough that we do what Mary did and just go, okay, God, whatever. Or, all right, God, I'm your servant. I believe you have to actually do something with what you believe. It's important to say we will obey God. It's equally important to take action on our obedience. So Joseph models what I would call the practice of taking the next right step. As we begin this Advent season, I I would ask you, what is the next right step that God is calling you to take? In your life, in your walk with the Lord, If we were to make this practical, maybe we would break down the practice of taking the next right step by saying, number one, that we would prayerfully seek God's will. And by prayerfully seek God's will, I mean actually pray. Ask God to reveal His will to you. Read Scripture. Ask for wisdom from people that you you believe have godly wisdom. I don't just mean people that the world thinks are smart. We're not talking about reading a self-help book. We mean ask people who have godly wisdom to give you wisdom. The next thing that we would do to practice the step, the, the discipline of taking the next right step would be rather than figuring out every step, just focus on the next step. And then the third thing that you would do to practice taking the next right step is Take that step. Do the thing. Say the words. Make the phone call. Whatever it is that God has told you to do, do it. And then repeat. Every day for the rest of your life. Because Joseph didn't just do one thing. Right? He changed his actions. He got on board with God's plan every single day. When all of a sudden it was pack up and go to Bethlehem, I guess that's what we're doing today. When, when it was, there's no room in the inn, well, I guess we've got to figure that out too. We're going to trust the Lord. He said that this baby was going to be born. I don't, he didn't say he was going to be born in comfort. He said he was going to be born. Right? So I guess we're just going to figure out how to do this today. So Zechariah, Mary, and Joseph, they all hear the prophetic promise of the Messiah. In fact, you could argue that they were the last ones to ever hear the prophetic promise of the Messiah. Because after them, it was all history. But we have also heard. We celebrate as we begin the Advent season because we have heard. 
And in our hearing, we actually have an advantage. We are not looking forward to a Messiah that we don't yet know. We have the privilege to look back, to know that Jesus was and that he still is the Messiah. As Advent begins, I want to invite you into these three practices this, in this, over the course of this next month with me. And together as a church, what would it look like for us, maybe daily, to practice silence before the Lord as we think about the implications of a Christmas celebration? What would it look like for us to practice silence? What would it look like for us as we respond to an invitation to practice speaking our obedience to God? That, that in maybe even out of our silence that we would come to a place of then saying, God, I will now speak a word of being obedient to you. I think there's something significant in that. And then, the, and then the third invitation is to begin to practice the discipline of taking the next right step. I'd like to add a point of clarif- clarification there. Um, that is not to say that God is not interested in you having a big, bold, courageous plan for your, the rest of your life. Not at all. But that God can give you that big, bold, and courageous plan and that you don't have to worry about getting all of it together. You just take the next right step that he tells you to take and you trust that along the way he will tell you the next right step to take that will get you to his big, bold, and courageous plan for your life. Even if it turns out when you get there, it's not at all what you thought it was going to look like because it's his plan. Amen? Now, I actually can't know today what God's plans are for each of your lives. I mean, I I suppose I could, but I don't. God would have to reveal that to me, and I'm telling you, he has not done that. I'm actually really glad about that, by the way. That sounds like a lot of pressure. But I think it also is a good reminder that the, the role of pastor is just a fellow traveler. God has not told me the plans for your life. I'm not even sure I know all the plans he has for mine. And so together on this journey, can we practice silence when it's needed, speaking when it's needed, active obedience, taking the right next step when it's needed? Because this is what I know. God intends for every single one of us to encounter Emmanuel. God with us. He wants us to know the Lord, our righteous Savior, as Jeremiah prophesied. Christmas is the celebration of the coming of the Savior of the world. I don't know the plans for your life. Jeremiah 29.11 says that he does. And the biggest plan of all would be that you have an affirmative answer to the question, do you know Emmanuel, the Savior of the world? Are are you taking steps in your life with him, and are you being guided by him? And so as we begin Advent together this year as a church, can we pause for a moment? We paused to light a candle, and with a prayer, we kickstart Christmas. Can we, can we end this morning 
with the same prayer, with the same heart. In fact, if you're able, would you stand to your feet with me as we take a moment to honor the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And I just wonder if before I would lead us in a moment of prayer, if you, in your own thought, in your own word, with your own voice, with your own heart, could say what would be on your heart today to begin this Advent season? Is there anything that you would say to the Lord? Maybe you need to give Him some praise this morning. Maybe it's been a while since you, even though we've had Thanksgiving, maybe it's genuinely been a while since you feel like you've paused to say thank you to God for His promise and His work in your life. Maybe there's something that you would ask Him today. God, there's, some, there's a point of of something that I don't understand that I want to ask you about today. I just want to give you a moment to say anything that you need to say to God. Maybe you need to make a commitment to Him to obey. Maybe there's a point of conviction. I believe that the Holy Spirit can, is the one who convicts us of our sins. So if there's a point where the Lord is convicting you of sin today, that you would take this moment as an opportunity to repent before the Lord. Repent is not a guilt and shame word. It's a, it's a word that says, I make a commitment to walk a different way. As you make these commitments before the Lord today, as you ask these questions, as you say these words of praise, God, would you hear our prayers? God, thank you for the moments where hope can feel like a, like a loud roar and a shout. We take courage in those moments, but we thank you also for the peace of hope. That in moments like this, we can just stand before you knowing that we are standing before the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior of the world, the Lord who is our righteousness. And as we stand before you, God, we honor you today, knowing that you are our hope, our Messiah, our Savior. Jesus, we welcome you as the Lord, our righteous Savior. Father, we thank you for the love and safety that you offer us through your Son. Holy Spirit, lead us in wisdom and truth as we submit our lives to you. We commit today to listen to your voice. We commit today that we will speak and take action to obey. But we ask, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would help us to honor you in this season and in every season of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.